If you have a Bible, open it up to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Um, in those blue Bibles, it's page 525 if, you, if you're using one of those. And, um, and we're going to read from God's Word this morning. Um, beginning in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. And uh, thank you for standing in honor of the Word of God. We're, gonna, we're talking a lot about... The scripture today, just this this book in general, what it is, and and um, and so I hope we are beginning to gain a respect and a and a hunger for and an honor for the Word of God. And so um, I thank you guys. I appreciate you for standing. Um, beginning in verse seventeen of Matthew five, Jesus says this: Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the consistency, the inerrancy, the infallibility, the sufficiency, the the, the scope of your word. I thank you for the clarity. Um, the the minute details that your word is so uh, so perfect and so so clear to bring together for us the the historicity and validity of your word, God, I, I thank you so much for that. We don't have to wonder if this is true, if this is um, if this is something we can rely on. We know that it is not just from not just from logic in our own minds, but because you said it's true and we can trust you. So I thank you. For that, I pray that you'll teach us this morning from your word. I pray that we will leave here with a, a, a greater respect and honor for uh, this book. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, so as you can see, we're kind of moving, we're shifting in this sermon. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And we're shifting from what we've been talking about for a long time, this sort of introductory section on the Sermon on the Mount from verses 1 through 16. Jesus has been building an introduction. He's talked about what a Christian looks like, how a Christian will live, um, how the world will receive a Christian when they live like they're supposed to. Um, you guys may not realize it, but it, subtracting Easter Sunday, we've spent 11 weeks just on this Introduction, unpacking it. And honestly, we could go back and spend 11 more weeks on this same passage and not say the same thing twice. It's, it's really big and, and we've spent a long, a long time unpacking it. Um, and what, what I see when I, when I read this as a, uh, as a preacher is that Jesus is a master orator. I mean, he just, I fumble. Yeah, I don't know if you guys can tell it. Sometimes you've told me you can. Introductions and and closings, I fumble. Man, I'm just, to get going is so hard for me. Um, once I get going, I, I can do pretty good and I start to get on a roll. And then when it comes time to close, once again, I'm just like, I mean, I've, I've finished my notes and I'm still talking. And I'm like, why am I still talking? I wrote notes for a reason. I, I, we fumble through these things. Jesus glides right through this introduction and he and with with precision and skill he doesn't say anything that doesn't need to be said he says he says everything that does need to be said he just glides through this in such a way that it takes us in in at least 11 weeks to begin to understand it which is which is pretty intense it's, it's pretty intimidating and then in this next section that we just read it, it's like Jesus is 
is answering some sort of a um, an opposition to what he's about to say or what he's already said. Or maybe he's kind of preparing his listeners for what he's getting ready to say. Um, there's no doubt that Jesus knew that what he was teaching, the things he was saying, the things he was going to say were different than the way the Jews had believed. Remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience. He's a Jew. He grew up in this area. He knows these people. He knows how the religious leaders taught. He went to synagogue on the Sabbath. He knew what they believed, and he knew their perception of Yahweh, of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven. He knew all these things. He was raised in it. He knew full well that what he had already said, what he was going to say... As well as everything that he would teach, everything that he would do from here on out was different and even in opposition or contrary to what they believed. They were not in the same mindset. They had, they had kind of got on a different track. And, and so it's almost like Jesus wants to clarify either what he's already said or what he's getting ready to say as if Jesus ever needs to clarify himself. But he... He's doing this, and we don't see a break in the conversation. It's written just like a monologue. He just keeps talking. Um, we don't hear from anyone in the crowd to make us think he's answering a question, although he may have. We just It's not recorded. Um, we do know, however, Jesus sees the hearts of men. He knows what we're believing. He can see our minds. He knows what we're thinking. Um, he knew how he would be received as a matter of fact, Jesus knew from the foundation of the earth that the things he would say, the things he would do, the things he would teach, even the cross he would die on would be a stumbling block and an offense to his own people. John 1.11, I've come to my own and my people did not receive me. He knew this and, and so he, it's almost like he's just clarifying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm not, I'm, and so he's, he's kind of clarifying. So, so I'm going to read it again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do not think. Don't think this. Why, why would they think this? He's, it sounds like he's answering objection. We don't read an objection. Why would they think this? Why does he feel like it, it's needed to say this? Well, like I've said already, Jesus knows the human heart. He knows the human mind. He literally is holding our brain cells together in this moment right now. So he knows what we're thinking. He's not oblivious to the depravity of our hearts and our minds. And he knows full well that for thousands of years, the Jewish people and especially their religious leaders had, had kind of made a mockery of the law that God had given to Moses, they had made it almost like a game to see how good they could be or invent new rules. And it was all of, all of, their, all of their obedience was about outward appeal. i got to make myself look like a Christian rather than hearts drawing near to the Lord. And Jesus even said, You're, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You, you're not getting it. You're trying to act like something, but there's something in here that's not. So he knew this. And, um, and that's, I believe that's probably why he said it. He's just immediately right off the bat. He gives his introduction. And, then he's, and if you read after this, he begins unpacking a lot of their laws. And he just goes ahead and says, don't think that I'm, I'm coming to abolish this stuff. I'm not. 
Jesus' teaching up until this point, even in the Beatitudes, was very different than what they had come to believe and what they had come to practice. And what he was about to preach and teach them was different. And he, in all these sections, if you can, you can look at it, he says, you've heard it was said, but I say. You were taught, but I say. He's, he's challenging, but he's not abolishing. And so we've got to understand that as we, as we approach the rest of this sermon. He, everything that he was going to teach seemed like it was in opposition to them, their leaders, their interpretation of the law. This is not the way they had believed. This is not the way they were taught. This is not the way they were raised. His teaching to them, although he's not abolishing their law, it's completely foreign to them. They, they have no clue how to even perceive it. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think that I've come to abolish your old laws. Do not think that I've come to tear down everything that you've built up for the last millennium. Don't think that the things I'm teaching are going to destroy everything that you believe or your way of thinking and doing. Don't think that this new system is in some way voiding out the old system completely. Don't think that because that's probably what a lot of them were thinking as they heard him speak. Jesus comes and gives the Beatitudes. He gives blessedness. He pronounces blessedness where the Pharisees had pronounced curse. You don't want to be persecuted. You don't want to be hum- humble. You don't want to. They were teaching one thing, and he comes in. And it's just like he's flipping it over. But he's saying, "Don't think that I've come to abolish it. That's not what I'm here for." He had Jesus said, "Rejoice in persecution," where the where the Pharisees were the ones persecuting people. He said, "You lay on the people a burden too heavy for them to bear." They were the ones doing it, and he's coming in. But he's saying, "Don't think that I've come to abolish it." From their perspective. Here's this man who comes along teaching something totally new, totally foreign to them. And he teaches with a special authority. It says later in Scripture he had an authority that their scribes and their Pharisees, their teachers didn't have. And he's giving them something brand new. His message was different. From our perspective, imagine we've grown up in in, in the South. We are Christians um, we, 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 we come to believe these things. Maybe you are a believer. You believe the Bible. You even memorize parts of it. You sing songs with scripture in them. And now imagine that a man comes along and he begins teaching in the name of your God. But he teaches something completely different than you've ever known. Than you've ever believed. Everything he says is out of step with what you have thought. We, this would be upsetting for us. Would it not be? This would be hard for us to, to grasp. Surely some of us might think to ourselves, does this guy think that he's coming and he's just going to get rid of everything that I believe and my parents believed and their parents believed and their parents believed? And We can't act like this was just an easy transition for these Jewish people. As a matter of we look back. Hindsight being 2020, we look back, we read the prophecies in the Old Testament, we read the New Testament, we are Christians, so our minds have been enlightened to understand it, and we think, how could they not see the truth? Why do they not believe in Jesus? Well, they couldn't. And Jesus even knew when he would come, he would be the stumbling block. I have put a stumbling block. I have given a rock of offense. That's what God said. I'm giving Jesus We go back to John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus very 
being, being around on the earth, is what would cause them to stumble. So we've got to understand that this was not easy for them. As a matter of fact, it was set up in such a way that they wouldn't get it. And if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, we, you find out that the reason it is this way is so that we would someday believe. The gospel would come to the Gentiles. And so let's not act like this is just some, oh, I can't believe they didn't get it, stupid Jews. You know, it's, it was hard. It's hard for them to get this. And so he's clarifying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. When Jesus says, or, or any Jew for that matter, or when we read in Scripture about the law, he's talking about the Torah. That's the first five books of our Old Testament. Now, that's its specific meaning, and it kind of gets broader, which we'll learn about in a second. Um, this is the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it can be broken down into three different parts. There's the moral law, and, and that includes the Ten Commandments. These are moral rules that we still abide by. We don't commit adultery, we don't lie, we don't steal, we honor God. Um, and the Ten Commandments and kind of how those unpack themselves, we still do this. Um, there's the judicial law, which is kind of like a legislative type law that was given to the Jewish people for that particular time, where they were going to be living, how they would govern themselves. And then there's the, uh, the ceremonial law, which most people get the most caught up in, and that's the instruction on the burnt offerings, sacrifices, religious observances, holy days, the things that they had to do in order to make atonement for their sin. And God gave them all these things of, of, of killing goats and bulls and calves and, and all these different sacrifices. Those are the ceremonial laws that they were to observe. So there's moral, judicial, and ceremonial. So when Jesus says the law, that's what he's talking about, the law. Then he says the prophets. Now, we can probably all guess what he means by the prophets. Those are those guys in the Old Testament who, would, who were like the mouthpiece of God in that day. And when we think of prophets, we typically just think of predicting the future. We hear prophecy or prophet and we think somebody that can predict the future. You know, sitting around a, a crystal ball and, or reading palms. That's, they did do that. And there were times in the Old Testament when those men would foretell the future. God would speak to them something that nobody else heard but them. And they would deliver that word to the people about the future. They did do that. But the, the main job of the prophets in the Old Testament was to be commentators on the law of Moses. So God would establish his prophet, his man. And then when the children of God would disobey God's law, he would speak to that man and say, you better go remind them what my law says. And he would go to the people directly or maybe just to the king or whoever had disobeyed. And he would tell them... God said, this is what he's going to do if you don't repent, if you don't turn back. I'm just reminding you, remember, he's made a promise and he will come through with it. And so, depending on if they had obeyed or if they had disobeyed, the prophets would come and say, remember, the law says you'll be blessed if you obey. Or remember, the law says you'll be cursed if you don't obey. This is what God's saying. So they were basically enforcers of God's law. Um, and they spoke on behalf of God himself. This kind of translate in, translates into our time as preachers take the, the Bible and we just exposit it. We teach you what the Bible says. I'm not predicting the future. I don't have a gift of seeing the future. But in that way, I just deliver to you what God has already said. I'm just helping you understand it. So that's kind of how that, that prophetic gift works itself out in our day. Um, most of the prophets in the Old Testament were treated very badly. 
by the Israelites because they were they were basically telling people for the most part things they didn't want to hear because if you read the Old Testament they were constantly disobedient and so the prophets would have to go to them and say you're going to die God's going to kill you he's going to take your children you're going to be in captivity they didn't want to hear that and so the prophets were 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 beaten killed um, looked down on mistreated um, they were great men of, of faith and obedience now. Jesus doesn't really separate the two in this statement. And that's important for us to understand. Because separately, you've got the law over here. And then you've got the prophets who interpret the law. But he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is kind of a a, a blanket statement. And it means one thing. Their scriptures. The Jewish Bible, as we would say. They didn't call it the Bible, but the Jewish Bible. It's also called the scriptures when we read through our Scriptures. Now, if you remember, when you read back in, in, in the Bible and you hear them talking about the scriptures or the writings or the teachings, or I read Psalm 119 this morning, it says your commandments, your law, your statutes, your word, all these things, they didn't have this Bible. They didn't have this book like we have it, which is pretty amazing that they would teach, and especially in the New Testament, the apostles would found the church on just the Old Testament. And then, of course, the Spirit reminding them the things that Jesus had taught them. They didn't have this whole book. And so we have these blanket statements that we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, like the Law and the Prophets, that are referring to their scriptures. It's kind of like if somebody said, if I say, I went to Golden Crow the other day, and you say, What'd you have? And I say, I had the buffet. I did not eat the bar. I didn't even eat one thing or, or a bite of every single thing on the buffet. I just say the buffet and you understand that means th- I got a grasp of everything. That's what I had. It's a blanket statement. So um, hopefully that, that makes sense. Now, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't, Individually, they didn't take a copy of the scriptures home. They would go to the synagogue and their religious leaders would teach them from a scroll. And Chrissy and I went to a, a, an exhibit in Charlotte and got to see some of the scrolls like they would use. And these are not like, you know, we imagine like a man rolling out a little scroll and reading. No, these are, these are big, like three foot tall scrolls, you know, a couple people rolling it out on the table, big scrolls. And they would have one for each book of the Bible, each prophecy or the law. And so they didn't have a Bible like we have, but when you read Statements like the law or the law of the prophets or those things. That's the Jewish Bible. That would be our Old Testament. If you're speaking to a Jew, don't say the Old Testament. They don't like that. Okay, they don't have a New Testament. There's just the scriptures or what they would call it, the Tanakh. That's what they call their Bible, the Tanakh. And and that word Tanakh is made up of three different abbreviations. Uh, The T-E, and this is a modern spelling. The T-E is for the Torah, the law. Then there's the the uh, the Nabi'im, which is the prophets, and then the ch is ketuvim, that's the writing. So you've got the law, which we've talked about. We've got the prophets, which we've talked about, and then the last one, the ketuvim, the writings, is basically all the other books: um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ruth. Those different writings that were included. So when you read, especially in the New Testament, when you read blanket statements like the law and the prophets, or the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. They're talking about all of their Bible. And, and the apostles and Jesus even use statements like this. And that's how we look back and say our Old Testament is what they read. It is was their Bible. For example, if you got a, a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 11. And if you don't, it'll be up here. Luke chapter 11. 
I'll show you this. This is, this is important for us to understand because people will come to you and say, that, that's not the Bible they have. We've changed the Bible up so much. There's no way that what they were talking about is the same thing we talk about. So this is, this is how you can get them. And in Luke chapter 11, we can learn that our Old Testament is, the, in fact, the Bible that Jesus would have read from. Luke chapter 11, in verse 49, this is Jesus talking. And he says this. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. He said all the prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now when we read that, Jesus refers to all of the prophets, every bit of the things that people wrote down in the name of God, that God had said to people and they wrote down, and then he gives two names, that all that stuff falls in between, Abel and Zechariah. Now, Abel we know, Abel was the son of Adam and Eve, Cain killed Abel because God had accepted Abel's sacrifice instead of Cain's sacrifice, and Cain got jealous and he killed him, so we know Abel. That's the first man. I mean, that's like Genesis. That's early on. So we got that man. The second man is, is the one that kind of causes the confusion. His name is Zechariah. Jesus says he was killed between the altar and the, uh, the uh, what well, they say, the altar and the sanctuary. Now this story you can find in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. The problem is Zechariah wasn't the last prophet killed chronologically. If you look, if you if you're reading your Bible chronologically, there is another man, um, and his name is Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, who was also killed. He was a prophet. That took place during the reign of King Jehoiakim, which was later. So either Jesus has got his facts mixed up, or he was just using a different Bible. We've got some stuff that was added later, or stuff was taken away. It doesn't make sense. Well, here's the fix: the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh wasn't in the same order as our Bible. When they their scriptures goes from Genesis, and then they have the, the books of prophecy, like Chronicles, which is one book for them, is the very last book of their Bible. So he's not talking chronologically, he's talking about his Bible. He's saying all of the prophets exist in this book, from Genesis to Chronicles, and he he, he calls it the wisdom of God. He's just describing his scriptures, his book. So when we look at that we say, hey, Jesus used the same Bible I do. His was in a different order, but it had the same books in it. So he's talking about the Old Testament writings. He, he means the scriptures that they had at that time. And like I said, it's the same as our Old Testament, just in a different order. We broke them up to where we have 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. They didn't do any of that. They just had it all together. So do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says he didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to destroy the Old Testament and move on to something new, something better. He came to fulfill it. So in essence, Jesus is saying, it's not what you think. I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to fulfill the prophets. That word fulfill means literally to complete or to finish or supply or, or kind of uh, top off. Jesus is saying he's come to bring it 
to its fullest intended meaning. I've come to make it make sense, so to speak. And it's the same with the prophets. There are many things that the prophets said, speaking on behalf of God, that didn't make a whole lot of sense back in, the, in those days. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it unpacks crucifixion. They didn't know what crucifixion was. He just wrote it down. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, remember that psalm? That was talking about this. So they were writing things that they didn't quite understand at the time. We look back now and we, we see that they were talking into the future. And so Jesus says, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. They were saying what God told them to say. And he comes so that we can see what it all means. So when we put all that together... The law and the prophets is, is speaking of the entire Old Testament. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish, do away with the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to bring it all to its intended meaning, its final purpose. He has come to show us what it all meant. He's come to help us finally see what all that stuff was about. So if you imagine a cup of water that's half full, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to dump out your water and put some new water in it. I'm just filling it up. So that it can finally be used as it, for what it was meant to be used for. In 2 Corinthians, it says all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So if you just read the Old Testament, you fall into an apostate religion called Judaism. You're still waiting for a Messiah. You're still looking. You don't believe Jesus. You don't trust in Jesus. You don't have faith in Jesus. If you just have the New Testament, you don't understand Forgiveness, atonement, the death of Jesus. You don't understand those things because you don't know where it came from. The Old Testament and the laws and stuff. So you can't have one without the other. You've got to put them together. So that's what he's saying. In verse 18. He kind of reiterates the same thing. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's kind of, he's continuing to debunk their assumptions. It's like he's reiterating what he just said. He says, truly, I say to you, when you see this, truly, or truly, truly, or if you have a King James, verily, verily, it's the same thing. He's emphasizing what I'm about to tell you is the truth. Jesus is confirming, truly, I say to you, he's confirming that what he has already said, what he's going to say is the truth. Contrary to what you may think, contrary to your assumptions on the matter, contrary to cultural biases, contrary to the way you were raised, what I'm going to tell you is the truth. Bottom line, that's what he's saying. And I hope you can see that contrast in the two verses. Do not think... For truly I say, he's contrasting. You're thinking something, and I'm going to help you get away from that thinking by telling you the truth. And that's the point of this section of the monologue. He's replacing false thinking with truth. The scripture still does this to this day when we read it. You read it, you think, man, it's not the way I was taught growing up. That's not, what I, that's not how I thought it happened. That doesn't sound right. We get in there and we study it. You know, you know the, the words have different meanings. We get in the original languages. Man, that's pretty crazy. I never thought of it that way. I never saw it that way. Replacing false thinking with the truth of what he says. 
And the same goes for us today. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what your government says. It doesn't matter the way you were raised, your assumptions. What Jesus says, what this book says is truth. This is all we have that we can say, I know it's truth. And we'll, we'll, we'll see in a minute how, what, what kind of validity Jesus puts on his word. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth... Pass away. He's talking about the end of the age, the end of when it's all said and done, basically, when everything that is prophesied and spoken about in the pages of Scripture, when it's all done, when the law and the prophets have come to pass, when everything it says comes to pass, that's what he means, the end of everything. Now, a lot of times when we think of the end times, we only think of the book of Revelation, which is at the end of our Bible. Um, the study of the end times or last things is called eschatology. And we tend to think, well, if I want to know about the end of the times, I'll just read it over to Revelation. We read it and we have no idea what it, what it says because it's, if you read it, I just finished reading it yesterday. It's crazy. I mean, I'm reading it thinking, I can see why people read this and like have nightmares and stuff because it's crazy. But that's ten tends to be what we think, but that's actually not so. Um, there are many eschatological prophecies in, in Daniel. Many people will say, you're not going to get Revelation until you read Daniel. So we're reading Revelation. Like, I don't even know what this means. We've never read Daniel. So there, there are those last times prophecies in the Old Testament. Daniel and Isaiah and the other prophets, they spoke of these times. And so Jesus' listeners would have known what he meant when he said, until heaven and earth pass away. When it's all said and done. When everything's finished. There's also... A kind of figurative language here when he says, until heaven and earth pass away. Think about the heavens and the earth. For me, these are the, the two most concrete things that I can think of. No pun intended. Because concrete itself even cracks and breaks. If you're going to pour a sidewalk, you have to put expansion joints in it because when it gets cold, it'll contract. When it gets hot, it expands. But the earth is solid. To me, I think of the earth. I, uh, there was an earthquake in China this weekend. 180 some people, I think, already found dead. They're still looking for people. I've never experienced an earthquake, but that sounds terrifying to me that the ground moves. Because the ground is the one thing I know. I'm walking on it, it's not going to go anywhere. An earthquake, the ground moves. That, that freaks me out that the most solid of the solid that I can think of would shift and move. And it's not going to be here forever. It has fault lines. It moves. The very essence of what we think of as firm and secure, the ground and the sky, he says, until those things pass away. The roads are solid, but we pour our pavement on the road, on the ground so they don't float away. That's, we, we trust in this ground that we walk on. And Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, he's taking away all odds that this word will ever be Done with. That will ever be done away with. It's not going to happen. And later in Matthew, he says, Heaven and earth may pass away, but the, my word will never pass away. More, this is, this is a great hope and a truth that we have. More sure than the ground we walk on is this book. And we neglect it. And we put it aside. And we, oh, I can't understand that. That's too hard. This is, the, this is more sure than the ground we walk on. People in China are thinking, man, I thought the ground would hold me up. It moves. This word will never change. It never has and it never will. 
So when Jesus speaks of the passing of heaven and earth, it was something and is still something that we can comprehend, we can grasp. Even his Jewish listeners could understand this as they read from their scriptures. In the New Testament, we read in the book of Revelation and we see some more detailed pictures of the end of time. And we understand there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, so this one's going to be gone. And so he's explaining that until it's all said and done, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Now, I know you guys probably can't stand me pronouncing that word like that because we say not one iota. That's actually incorrect um, because when you read Greek, they don't have a long I sound made by the letter I. And that's what an iota is. It's the Greek letter I, but they don't pronounce it I. It's it's usually a short I, so it's iota, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. And not a dot. I bet you can probably guess what that is. That is the smallest little marking made by a pen. Maybe even the difference between a C and an E. Just a little, just barely touching. Not the smallest little bit. So we we get the picture. Jesus is saying that nothing of the law or the prophets, not the smallest letter, not even the smallest mark of a pen on a page, will pass away until all is accomplished. Until it's all done. Until it's all fulfilled. People in our day will say things like, well, we live in the New Testament, man. We don't live by that stuff anymore. Or the law doesn't apply to us anymore because we live under grace or these different things. Now, in some way, the law does apply to us differently. We're not under the law as it stands to to condemn us if we're Christians. But that moral code that God gives us, we still abide by. I don't say, well, I'm a Christian now, so I can... I can have an affair, or I can lie, or I can steal, or I can cheat. We don't do that. We still abide by the moral code. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest and most important aspects of the new covenant that God has made is that He's written His law on our minds and on our hearts. It stays. And so He's not just... It it doesn't pass away, but He's not just talking about moral laws. He's speaking of the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament, all of it, and none of it will pass away. Not the smallest letter, not the smallest mark until all is accomplished. Now the word for accomplished is is similar to the word fulfill in the previous verse and they kind of go together but it's a little different. Fulfill meant to bring it to its intended meaning or to, to fill up. This word for accomplished can be translated become or to be or done, or made, or made to happen. The idea with this word is that the, the law and the prophets will be brought into full existence. Will be It's almost like a creation word, like it will become what it is. It will be brought into full fruition, made what it's supposed to be. So, so Jesus is saying not one bit of the Old Testament scriptures will be rendered invalid or abolished until every single bit of it has been brought to its fullest existence, its fullest intended meaning. So the question then is, how does this happen? Well, this happens as Jesus Christ, God himself, becomes a human being, born of the Virgin Mary, in Bethlehem of Judea, lives a life of sorrows and grief, is falsely charged and condemned Crucified between two thieves, buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, comes back three days later from the dead, sends his spirit to indwell his people. We go make disciples of the nations so that there is a a group of people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth worshiping God when it's all said and done. In other words, 
The Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled or accomplished or brought to their intended meaning when everything in the Old Testament and everything that the Old Testament points to and prophesies about and speaks about happens when it's all said and done, when it all comes to pass. And because the law and the prophets or the scriptures, the whole Old Testament point to Jesus and He is their goal, then He and He alone is able to reveal to us their true meaning and bring them to their fullest intended meaning and purpose, to bring them to fulfillment. Only Jesus can do that. Many in our day and in Jesus' day seem to think that the coming of Christ has done away with the Old Testament. And so they think it's acceptable to, to like Jesus, to like New Testament Christianity, and then and still kind of neglect the Old Testament or harbor a disdain for the Old Testament. Like, I don't like that. The Old Testament God, He's mean and He kills people and they fight. And I don't like that. I like the New Testament Jesus and the New Testament Christianity. Well, that just contradicts what Jesus Himself says. So either you like Jesus or He's a liar or a lunatic or He's Lord and what He said He means. And so we have to put it all together. We have to take it for what it is. So we can't contradict Jesus with this. He didn't come in opposition to the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. Jesus came. He obeyed the entire law in all points. Every prophecy that was prophesied about the coming Messiah is and was fulfilled exactly in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And you can look at him. I mean, the odds, people have done the, the statistics on this stuff. And the odds of this is, is mind-boggling. That he fulfills them perfectly. He came and instead of voiding out the ceremonial law and the, the holy days and those things, he comes as the reality that all those shadows were pointing to. So we don't do away with it. We look at it and we say, this is how Jesus is, is, the, is the reality of those shadows. Instead of abolishing it and doing away with it or pushing it down, he lifts it up and exalts it to its highest intended meaning and purpose. He makes the Old Testament make sense. And the, the entire Old Testament is about Jesus, is about the coming of Jesus, is about the death of Jesus, the forgiveness offered in Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we can't understand the ideas of sin and forgiveness and purity and atonement until we understand the Old Testament. We can't get it. And you see this. You, you hear people speak today and they don't understand atonement. They don't understand substitution. They don't understand the death of Jesus. They don't understand these things. It's because they don't read the Old Testament. That you have to understand that to understand the New Testament. For this reason, we're going to take a few weeks away from Matthew. And we're going to take a break right here. And I'm going to go through the Old Testament. Some of the high points. It's not going to be exhaustive. It's not going to be really detailed. But some of the high points of what was going on in the Old Testament. So that you can see... That it's about Jesus and help us to understand that it's about Jesus. And I think it's important of our understanding of, of Jesus, who God is, the things he taught, the salvation he offers in his death and his resurrection. We can't get that stuff until we get the Old Testament. And, and I, I think it's, it's, it's important for us. Um, when I began to read and study last week, I was kind of thinking, man, this would be really cool, a good idea before we unpack the law. 
And then as I read and heard some things this week, God kind of solidified it. Like, you need to do this. Your people need to, to know this. Um, we're a young church. We've not been going very long. It's hard for us to get a grasp of all of the Bible just from Sunday to Sunday because we only have 52 weeks a year if we, if we, we do this every week. And so it takes a long time. To do this, and so I want to kind of just hit high spots, and eventually we'll go back and work through some of those books. Um, in the early days of the Reformation, when the people had been withheld the Scripture for many years, the Roman Catholic Church had said, "You don't read the Bible. We'll read it. We'll tell you what it says." And they just basically said, "Well, the Bible says if you want to go to heaven, you're going to have to give us a lot of money." And so the people had never read the scriptures. They had no idea what salvation was. They were giving money and praying and doing good deeds to get their loved ones out of a place that doesn't exist and into heaven called purgatory. They were completely fooled. And this is, it still happens in the Roman Catholic Church today. They are deceived. But in those days when the Reformation started, those leaders would pile on as much Scripture as they could as the people would take. I mean, like, just spoon-feeding Scripture because their generations had passed. Nobody had read the Bible. Nobody knew what it was. And so, um, I read a quote this week about John Calvin, who, along with the other Reformers, they believed in sola scriptura, which means Scripture alone. This, is, this alone is the authority over the church. Where the Roman Catholic Church had said, well, we're the authority and we'll tell you what the Bible says. They still do this. They still believe that the Pope is over the church and can dictate what this says. The Reformers said, no, this book is God's Word and it has the authority. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And they also believed in tota scriptura. These are just Latin phrases. That means the totality of Scripture, all of the Bible, is God-breathed, which it says in 2 Timothy. And so... John Calvin preached verse by verse, continuous exposition. Aside from the book of Revelation, he preached on virtually every book in the canon of Scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, we don't have a complete record of all the things he taught, but we do know that he preached 200 sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. That's crazy. If you've read the book of Deuteronomy, that's insane. Um, 200 sermons on Deuteronomy, 159 sermons on Job, 174 sermons on Ezekiel, and so on. He went through every book, even into the New Testament. He just kept going. He wrote verse-by-verse -verse commentaries on almost every book of the Bible based on the original Greek and Hebrew, which he knew well. He preached two different sermons every Sunday, and then every day of the week, every other week at 6 a.m., except for during the winter because in Geneva it gets cold in the wintertime, so they bumped it up to 7 a.m. He averaged 170 sermons a year. On the alternate weeks that he wasn't preaching, he lectured three times a day to biblical students, to pastoral students. Because he taught the Bible, he was banished from Geneva for three years. And on the Sunday that he got to come back, he picked right back up with the verse he left off from and just kept on going. That's what they did. And he's not. And all the reformers did that. Luther, these guys, would they were passionate about the Bible because they knew generations had passed and people had not read. They didn't have a Bible. And so he, they were so passionate about teaching the Bible. And when I hear this, there's no doubt... Why these people started a reformation. There's no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt why these people knew the word of God. There's no doubt why these people would be burned at the stake for the scriptures. Because they knew it and we won't even read it. Is there any doubt why historic Christianity is still going? 
It's not stopping. I'm not, it's not stopping with me. It's still going. It's because God honors the preaching and the teaching of his word. None of it will pass away. The ground we stand on will be gone. This book will not pass away. And so they taught these things and they were passionate about it. And Isaiah, in his prophecies, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says that the Lord honors the one who trembles at his word. We read it and we're just like, this is, this is big. This is huge for us. And in one of the Psalms it says that God exalts his name and his word above everything else. This is top priority to our God. These men were dominated by the scriptures and it was necessary because people needed the word of God. They had not had it. And I don't think that our time today are any different. It, it comes in cycles and people are passionate about it and then it drops off for generations. And, and people don't read it. They don't know it. They watch television shows about the Bible that don't know what the Bible says. And I think we need to read the Bible for ourselves to see these things. And so I want, I want to do that. I take several weeks and, and do that because I want us to understand Scripture. I want us to hunger for it. And see a need for it. I don't, want, I don't want you to rely on me and say, and I can't wait to get back to church on Sunday so I can get some Bible time in. I want you doing it every day, consuming it. I want us to see Christ in every passage, in every verse. Because heaven and earth will pass away. This book will not pass away. And so if there's anything that we're going to walk on and build a foundation out of, it shouldn't be pavement. It shouldn't be dirt. It needs to be the word of God. Because all of these things will pass away, but his word will not pass away. So that's where we're going over the next several weeks. And I hope that you know, there aren't some type A people in here like, oh, crap, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to lose my place. We're gonna, I'm going to be all, you know, I, I think we'll be able to pick up pretty clearly where we left off. And, and it, it won't take long um, I'm, I'm just going to hit some high points and things so we can see this so um, God's word is important and I hope you see that if, if I die today or tomorrow I want you to learn one thing this book is important that's all That's if you get anything else or if you don't get anything else that's what I want you to get this book is important Read a Bible. We got free Bibles. We got a box of Bibles. Take a Bible. Take three or four of them and read all four of them. Or take them and give them away to friends. Read them. They all say the same thing, by the way. Read them. Know it. When people say, this is what the Bible's about, you can say, I don't think so. I don't know. You can, you can, you can see things. You can hear things. Say, you know what? I don't think they're quite getting it. They haven't got the point. I asked a friend this week on Facebook. He was arguing about uh, Christianity and, you know, the... True Christians are, are mean, hateful people. And, and I said, in two words, sum up. The, I said, have you ever read the Bible? He said, yeah. I said, you're a liar. And I, I still stand by that. I don't think he's read the Bible. I mean, I have trouble reading through this book. I don't see why an atheist who's not going to believe it would sit and read every verse of it. It's difficult. And I said, okay, well, if you've read it, sum it the whole thing up in two words. He couldn't do it. I said, well, it can be read straight through in 72 hours nonstop. So get started and let me know when you get back. People are reading the Bible that don't even believe the Bible just so they can argue with us. And we won't read it. And we have no idea what to say. We don't even know how to, well, I, don't, I mean, I guess, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know it. And so we have to know it. By the way, Jesus Christ is how you can sum up that whole book. And if you don't see that, if you don't get that, then either you didn't read it, you have a third grade reading level, or... The Holy Spirit of God hasn't opened your eyes to see that. That's the point. And so if you're not getting that, 
Maybe it's not been revealed to you and maybe you're not a believer and so you're just kind of fumbling through this stuff. I believe that if you truly search for God and want to know God, not want to argue, not want to, if you really want to know who God is, you open it up and he will show you who he is. If you're going to this book to figure out tips on how to, how to you know, have things or buy things or have more money or get through a problem. I mean, that stuff's in there, but that's not why we go to it. We go to it to see who God is and then he... He does that. And from who God is, we change. And we see these things in perspective. And we know, well, this is, this is stupid. I don't need this because of who God is. I don't need to think this way because of who God is. I don't need to react this way to my spouse because of who God is. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to unpack Scripture. As you guys can see, I've folded this up. I'm no longer following my notes. Like I said, I struggle through introductions and closings. And so um, Jesus doesn't do that. So I'll pray and we will.